had to understand that the ability of one person to knock me down and feel like a child opened up every childhood I'd ever had. And you know what? It was time for me to address that. If we want to have the impact we want to have in the world, then you've got to do the work on yourself. Hi, my name is Emily Chadbourne and welcome to Behind the Change, a podcast to inspire hope. Because let's be honest, sometimes it feels like the whole world has gone to shit. But here at Behind the Change, we speak to amazing humans who are doing really great things to make this world a better place. We find out what drives their leadership, what beliefs hold them firm in turbulent times, and what it really takes to grow their businesses and organizations to create even more impact. If you'd like to support our guests and little old me, then please share the episodes that you love. Rate and review because it really does help more people find us. And you can head to the show notes to join Behind the Scenes, a membership where you get bonus podcast episodes from me, exclusive access to a mini cast from every single guest, and heaps of other bonus content too. It's only $7 a month, and it goes a really long way to supporting this podcast and the guests that we are honored enough to speak to. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Change. In this episode, I speak to Emeli Paulo. Now, Emeli has such a phenomenal story. She is a five-time social entrepreneur, diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, and social impact consultant. She has two decades of facilitation behind her. She's reached over a million people globally. She spent time advocating for change with Oprah Winfrey, Sir Richard Branson, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and I know full well that she has sat side by side with Brene Brown. Recently, Emily just decided to take a couple of years off. And now she's back, and we're going to talk to her about what she's been doing, why she went into hibernation, how she came back to finding herself, reclaiming herself, and what she has learnt along the way. So I just want to double check the pronunciation of your name. Emali. 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 Do you have a friend called Mel? Mel, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Emali. Yeah. Ah, Emali. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to figure it out. Oh, no, that's fine. That's You've got two time. years, I tell people, of our friendship. Okay, and then after that, I'm like... After Ooh. that, I'm like, you, I asked you. Yeah, <laughs> fair. Two years is generous. I thought so. Yeah, yeah. What was behind the name? The, the name change. Yeah. Um, really simply, it was Black Lives Matter movement opened my mind to why would I change myself based on what this white Western world wants me to be. And Mr Parker in grade six said... I can't figure it out. I'm just going to call you Emily. And I just went with it. Yeah. For my whole life. And yeah. so, I don't know, I've had big changes, right? And they involved me owning who I am and part of my Polynesian culture is a big part of who I am. That's awesome. Yeah, man. Yeah, because why should you change your name so that white girls like me have an easier time saying it? And it's everywhere, right? I, yeah. I meet people who've got... Um, ethnic names and I have to I take my time to say explain that say it again you'd be surprised how often they say to me oh don't worry about it and I'm like no Mm. let's worry about it yeah let's say it right because your name holds so much power 
Like huge. it's who you are. It's your identity. And it's I'm I'm still going through it. Like I'm still needing to. St- I even hear myself say Emily mm. sometimes, and I don't mind if people get it wrong because it takes time to learn somebody. So I'm actually more um, impressed when someone takes the time to have a three minute conversation about my name. I'm like, yeah, thank you. That's really respectful. So tell me a little bit about your journey. So you and I met each other through the Collective Potential. I think I sat in one of your rooms in Melbourne and I was like, oh, this woman knows what living is about and what human connection is about and how powerful it is. And I was lucky enough to be in a few of your rooms and I think I even spoke at one of your events many moons ago. Thank you. And then I saw a post on Facebook and you were like, see you later, I'm going inside. And I'm not coming out for a while. And I was like, what's going on? You'd be surprised how many people didn't ask me what's going on. Because I've spent from the age of 17 inside social change. Not that I even understood that it was when I first started. I was like a presenter, a youth organisation, which really was like a social innovation lab for young people, like a leadership program. And I didn't leave it for 20 years. And during that period, I also then started to create my own. And I'd never stopped, Emily. Like, Mm. I've never actually stopped being this inspirational hero, this motivational speaker, all these terms I hated. But just before COVID, I realised, is that who I want to be? So Collective Potential was running for about 10 years, maybe hit its peak at the fifth year when I finally figured out what the hell I was doing. (laughs) Conjured an incredible amount of people around us who all believed that we are living in a very disconnected society. So let's address our own disconnection through well-being and um, mindfulness and all these amazing interactive workshops. And I just literally was burnt out probably two years before I even made the decision. Mm. Like how many times do we hear about burnout in society? You must have gone through it. Oh, absolutely. And burnout's a sneaky thing because you don't realise that you're burnt out until you're so far in the beast. That it's That's exactly a great phrase for it. I was inside the beast and I can see it now from a place of even my own trauma, like my own personal trauma was available to me to say, hey, we've got some healing to do. You know, all this work you're doing with others on their well-being and their mental state and their beliefs about themselves and the dreams that they wanted, you need to slow down now because your body's asking you to pay attention to it. And your healing starts there. And it was terrible. It was the most horrifying thing I've ever done in my life. And the most bravest thing to stop after you've been told you need to be this and do this and raise this much money and deliver this all across the country for mental health and change everything. But it was chaos. I can admit it now. It was absolute chaos. What business structure were you operating under before the burnout Um, in that chaos? Uh, through some amazing advisors, we were a proprietary limited, but we were a social enterprise. So right. 30% of what we did was um, community-based. So we had a service arm, so I was always working in corporate or community, and they would pay the big bucks that would fund this community organisation. Mm-hmm. And it worked because people were still paying for their coaching courses and their programs. So proprietary limited, thinking of it more from a social impact perspective, It was beautiful. Like, it really was working. Why do you ask? 
Because I can tell you the other side of when it stopped working. That's the reason I asked. Because to walk away from something that was making so much impact and one assumes was profitable at the same time, that is very courageous. (laughs) (laughs) With a question mark at the end. If you're watching me right now, I'm I'm, I'm pulling my hand, finger across my... (laughs) Across my forehead, my my temple. (laughs) What does profitable mean? I suppose that it is paying your wages. Yeah, and it towards the end it wasn't. Right. Because we were tired yeah. and uh, I find it so hard as an entrepreneur to admit it, but it wasn't profitable. Were we making impact? Different, you know, if you really look at what impact is, we were changing people's mindsets and belief and the, the feedback we were getting. We even got pre-seed funding, um, which is amazing for any organisation. And I just thought towards the end and in reflection now, there were certain products and services that we had were very profitable. But because I was so tired, I was splitting my time amongst too many products and services. And normally they're the ones that people love but don't have high return. And normally they're the ones that I actually love doing more than the, let's say, bread and butter. So we had these amazing, you know, former partners of PwC, the heads of IBM talent management you know the head of dfo they were all our advisors and they were amazing but they helped us change our products and services and our fees schedule but through that we lost a lot of what our community loved which is this ability to come together and connect and i can recognize now i'm not sure if i'm being too clear but i can definitely see that these workshops that maybe 150 200 people like weekly were turning up to when we changed the fee on that, they were like, that's not why we're coming. And it shouldn't be X amount of dollars and increase that because that's not why we're here. We're here for the community connection. And I don't know, you can look at it from a business perspective. They're like your funnels really, those workshops too. And then you have people who want to come along and do your $10,000, $5,000 packages. Oh, I just wasn't always so interested in delivering that either. Like mm. I wanted to run events and national campaigns and that mattered to me to be an advocate and an activist because I was seeing the impact of people really struggling and they didn't have the money also this certain group that we were working with that I really loved working with compared to the others so I think I just cared a lot about this group who didn't have the money Mm. and it just wasn't profitable in the end yeah and also when you've got that split focus like we are only one people, right? <laughs> like to have your attention divided and to feel pulled to have to put your attention towards the stuff that doesn't light you up but monetizes. Like you're just always working against yourself, yeah, right? The, 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 the big business fat cats, I call them, were like, well, you know, it's bread and butter and we've just got to do these X, Y and Z. And I was like, well, now you've got a job that you don't like. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, and it's good to sort of reflect on it. I still, you know, I pulled out all of our revenue and all of our profit and loss statements over that time where I was quiet and I can see the line items that were working and weren't weren't working. But ultimately, I I still think that I was just sincerely burnt out. Mm. And you can't be in well-being if you're at that peak. And I had to really, I even said to my team, like I'm some artist, I said, guys... There's something wrong with me. I can't keep going. Mm. 
I'm exhausted, all these events. And they, they turned around to me, my team, and said, you have to do it. And I brought this up with them three years on and they're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't even know what you were saying to me. So to some degree as the speaker or the talent, who's also the organisational leader, who's also the sponsorship and partnership manager and the community manager, I just wanted to be there for everybody. Mm. And <laughs> that is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> But it's also such a fine line for your team to tread, isn't it? Between like motivating you to do the thing and to stay engaged and we've got this and to know when that line actually tips over into, oh, no, 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 she does need to just like go and lie down in a dark room for three years. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yep, that's pretty much what I did. (laughs) (laughs) Was there like a specific tipping point? Was there like a day or a moment where you're like, and I'm done? What? pretty personal look what I will say to that because I'm all about personal I had what I would say a really traumatic experience that when you start to work away from preventative mental health and well-being and you move towards mental health which is what I was given this uh, title as a country uh, mobiliser for the United Global Mental Health Campaign and I was flown over to um, South Africa to be part of you know, all these amazing countries from Zambia to South Africa to Germany to South American countries were all here at this amazing conference that to start a united campaign because there hasn't been one before. Wow. And so I got selected next to one of Australia's best academics and I'm still got, what the hell have they got me here for? But I, I get it. I said to the, um, the lead of it at the time, why? She said, because you mobilise people. And if you look at my background, that's exactly what I do in campaigns. To bring it back, it was sort of in this moment of I was juggling mental health, advocacy, and preventative mental health. And if you know anything about it, they're two very different things. One is heavily based in the diagnosis of a psychiatrist, a psychologist. I am not one. Have I done every therapeutic approach, integrated approach with my own coaching clients and studied? Yes. But there was this moment where... A woman who was working with us, who I still think was very unwell, but we propped her up to be a big part of our community, kind of took down the entire project. Right. So That's so big. It was huge. Yeah. Because there's a betrayal in that as well, isn't there? Number one. It took me about six months to understand why it hit me mm. so, so hard because I put all of my own money into we're going to get the sponsorship. And we just were about to. We were travelling around in sexy luxury motorhomes. We had amazing sponsorship for that. We wanted to reach different rural towns, regional towns and across Australia. And so I started going out. You can hear my burnout at this point, hitting the towns and just doing what I call data research, like actually asking the people, the human-centred design, what was going on for them in these towns. Long story short, because I didn't have any maybe extra health and well-being in mind, I couldn't see that this was coming straight for us, that mm. we were working with people who were mentally unwell. And can you imagine the vicarious trauma that me listening to this story after story after story? But it was this one catalyst from this one person that changed the direction of where we want to go. So the betrayal became, how do I put it, Em? It became the, the nail in the coffin. Yeah. It was like, oh, my God, I've just lost it all. 
all of our team fell apart. They were devastated because it meant we couldn't move forward because of what she started to spread or speak about us. We lost the sponsorship, we lost the title, we lost all the people that were involved, gone. All within a month. Oh, wow. I would even say it happened within a week. My gosh. And it's still pretty raw for me. I probably couldn't have had this conversation ages ago because I don't necessarily understand. I I sort of see it like the dark night of the soul that we're all supposed to go on or we do multiple times in our life. The mental health world calls that mentally unwell, but I call that a dark night of the soul. It's a lesson to learn. And I had to understand that the ability of one person to knock me down and feel like betrayal opened up every childhood wound I'd ever had. And you know what? It was time Mm. for me to address that. If I truly wanted to be the person I wanted to be in the world, if we want to have the impact we want to have in the world, then you've got to do the work on yourself. Oh, God, it's the lesson that keeps coming back to me time and time and time again. Every single time it just pops up. Are you doing the work, Em? Are you doing the work? Are you doing the work? You've got to do the work. So betrayal became like an acceptance of, oh, my God, I've been appeasing people. I say yes. How high do you want me to jump? How much money are you going to give us so that I can keep doing what I want? And, you know, like it was... It was it you was, can even call me by a different name. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. We'll, get, we'll get on to where it... My mess at that time literally became my message. But it took me two years or three years to just go... I want to unravel my identity that I was so attached to. Mm. And I wanted to, but it was more like forced upon me. Because who am I without this amazing social enterprise? Who was I without all of these thousands of people I was speaking to every year? I didn't know. Mm. I thought I did, but when you're burnt out, you know, we can go down the path of understanding the polyvagal nerve and, the lessons behind trauma and, you know, I went my amygdala shut down, yeah. you know, was, was inside my brain, was like, you've been hurt, now we're going to go into quiet zone and make sure you're safe before you move. And so then I'm assuming it was a relatively instantaneous, although the build-up was really long, it was a relatively instantaneous decision in the end, was it? Uh, yeah, like it was almost... I always see it also, we shut down this beautiful organisation, but I do believe things have a shelf life and a decade's pretty good for anyone to be out on their own developing work, I do believe, until it changes form or you pivot or you just shut it down altogether. So, yes, it was pretty quick. Uh, I ended up saying, all right, everyone, six months, that's it. I'm going to start to prepare and guess what happened in six months? COVID. Because <laughs> the universe wasn't ready for you to be. And can you imagine if I was still trying to run events face-to-face as that's what our main product and service, or main service was? I almost was like, thanks, universe. I'd already wrapped it up before this horrible thing had all mm. hit the entire world until we all had a collective trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And so you spent lockdown just with yourself Going through the... Yeah, I thought I could do it on my own, but I just intuitively knew that would be stupid because I am very social, or I was particularly back then. Uh, I moved in with my sister and her nephew at the time, or my nephew, and guess what I needed? Family. Mm. 
you know, I've got a sister that is the light at the end of every tunnel I've ever had. She speaks words of truth into me and supports me in ways that I probably never let anyone else mm. hold me so vulnerably. So she was the best person for me to spend two years with. Mm. How delightful. It was delightful. Mm. It was almost weird. I think there's a lot of people, don't you think? I, I say I'm always very tender about how I step through the lockdown conversation because obviously mm. here in Melbourne it was so long and, and so traumatic for so many people. And I have to acknowledge my privilege. I was basically working online anyway. You know, I don't didn't have to homeschool any kids. My job wasn't in any kind of threat. And I live in a lovely apartment by myself with my lovely dog and all my friends were within my 5K. So I could, you know, take the dog for a walk and see a friend at the same time. I'm so aware of my privilege. I actually found myself feeling really quite connected throughout those lockdowns. I mean, I did a lot and actioned a lot to make sure that, because I know myself and I know that, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a solitary c- creature. Mm-hmm. So I put things in place really early on. But right. One of those things was just like doing a Facebook Live every single morning into my Facebook group. Right. And sometimes I didn't even know what I was going to talk about, which is like, how we were doing. And then someone would say something and we'd, you know, have a conversation. Or Because I think to be in service for me is, is, is quite a priority for my mental health. So yeah, I found... Weirdly found lockdown very connecting. And, and I know I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not the general rule on that. You're allowed. I think it's really important that we talk about whatever it is for people during COVID. You know, I still go out on the weekends. or I am again recently. <laughs> <laughs> people are still dealing with the aftermath. You know, it's still here. So Yeah, because it's, it's not just about the, the pandemic itself. Is it? It's what it sparks in us. Like everything in life. You know, we move through life and stuff happens and that hits us somewhere. And sometimes that, that where it hits us is really painful and it asks us to go inwards and look at some stuff and uncover some stuff. And there is a resistance to that because it's pretty gross and dark a lot of the time. I find this conversation so fascinating because I went through one and I can see where I've been through them before. But you know when you think that you've done the work? Yes. And then it comes out and it's like this beast like you said I want to keep talking about it I think so many people don't know that it's a a process of healing Mm. what is unresolved yeah and sometimes that is a lifetime's worth of work and we just keep doing it and we keep showing up to it. it and business is such a huge trigger for that to happen I look at anyone who's in business I'm like I see the amount of personal development work that you have done Without, like you cannot be 100%. in business without doing a lot of that internal work. Yeah, especially if you're doing emotionally intelligent work with people. Like your your purpose is painful and you can turn your purpose, pain into a purpose and give it purpose, right? Mm. I think that's why people like us even interview each other because we're still, how is it for you? Like it, it's such a value set, a a belief in something greater than ourselves that keeps us going and to be of service to others, you really do have to learn who you are in the process and what you have to let go of. Mm. fascinates me. Yeah, it's so fascinating, isn't yeah. it? So when did you get to the point where you were like, I am ready, let's... To be interviewed by people like you. Because <laughs> I barred them. They came in red hot during okay. COVID. Can we interview you? Can we interview again? And I was like, no, 
So throughout that time, were you, you weren't working at all? At all. Wow, that's so brave. Thank you. You just, yeah, you just let it all go. Just f- let's f- not forget that bravery is still do it anyway, even through the fear. Well, yeah, bravery is fear, right? Like it's fear incarnate. So I, I can imagine that yeah, must have you, been. I'm almost forgetting about it. But, yeah, it was. I just heard the part of my soul that was saying to me, stop. This is the bravest thing you can do. And I can write chapters about it. And I'm sure one day I will. For me, maybe for one person that needs to hear it, it will be awesome. It's not really that interesting unless you're going through it, I think. But I just said enough. So I dropped for about a year. It didn't work whatsoever. But I would do coaching for companies so it was enough financially and I also was a successful entrepreneur so I, I had the privilege to take some time off. Yeah. I did. And then what happened when we were like, okay, new idea, <laughs> I'm coming out, let's do it? Uh, maybe that happened two weeks ago. Okay, great. Three weeks ago. Nice. Which I find fascinating, Emily. Like since I made that conscious decision – and it maybe came from Nicole Gibson, who's like a – she used to be oh, the yeah. mental health um, commissioner for Australia. She was the youngest we've ever had for like a decade, which is amazing in my mind. So we're quite good friends. And so she tapped back into me and said, are you on the comeback? And I was like, no, don't even ask me if I'm coming back yet. Like really resentful and resistant. No, I don't want to come up with any ideas or launch anything. But in the last three weeks since we had this conversation, she was already, she said it to me, you're already on the way back. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I am, aren't I? The fact that I'm having these conversations with people, yeah, I... Um, How funny that she knew before you knew. Kind of. Isn't that funny? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had that where... Oh, I've definitely, on more than one occasion, when, when somebody else has called something else out in me and I've been like, oh, yeah. That is who I am, or that is how it's going, or this is what's coming up next. Yeah, and mine is, it's a really interesting conversation because it's still, I'm still formulating it, but I recognise now for the last 23 years, let's say that's where I first started in social change or social entrepreneurial ventures, I've been doing diversity, equity, inclusion, and that's the new buzzword, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's doing DE and I and... And good on them. Fantastic. So I'd feel like my mess has become part of my message. So my comeback looks like doing the same thing, just in a different way. But if you'd asked me at the start of my burnout, I was like, that's it. I have had enough of people taking my energy. And, you know, I was so triggered from this uh, unconscious betrayal that I was like, I'm leaving it. But I said in the second year where I was still just taking my time, and again, so supported by people really close to me to do that. The sexy part of that is like I had to delve deep into what stopped me. Did you know, as an example, there was $200 billion went out in founders' money investment last year. So think startup. But out of that was 0.03% of the money was allocated to women of colour in Australia. Jesus Christ. Now let's look at that. Not even 1%. 0.03, so let's even imagine what the figures are for women, right, no matter what nationality you are. 
And then globally, according to the research, I was doing nothing but I was researching, only 1% are people of colour globally in startup. Now, it made me... That takes my breath away. Why? Because I think, honestly, it just, for me, that's like there is so much work to be done. Isn't there? And maybe, Emily, and I don't have to do this, but what's really gotten my backup or a really passionate plea to the startup world and to funders is this colour bias that's it's implicit. And I don't think anybody knows how to acknowledge their bias at this point. Like there's lots of bias trainings in corporate world and they're saying it doesn't work. And understandable because they're giving, telling people about their bias without strategies. Mm. And so You've got bias. Okay, thanks, bye. <laughs> yeah, and we all go, oh, God, yes, I'm so privileged. I've got power that I didn't even think I have. But something that links to the last two years for me was why didn't I get more funding to be able to run what I was going to run? And would I, as a white girl, have gotten more funding? Yeah. Or as a white man? Yeah, which is more important yeah. part of me right now. And I uh, feel like I think quite often I would walk into these rooms with big, old, white, privileged men and they would remind me of the abusers that I experienced when I was younger. Now, did I know that when I was super burnt out and was a 10-year activist? But because I slowed down and I was brave enough to really witness, oh, I didn't think I was good enough in these rooms. I'm from a low socioeconomic background. I don't have any education. You want to talk about financial management? What financial management? It was always these advisors that would come in and help us. Am I smart enough to acknowledge the difference between the academic that I was chosen next to? You heard me earlier. I was like, what am I even doing here amongst these people? And that's what the gold was for me to come back, was to really be honest of I couldn't speak up. I froze in these groups. And if you look at trauma, fight, flight, freeze, appease, dissociate, like these trauma triggers were so linked to me doing business that every day I had to be faced with fighting people and freezing and running away from what I probably should have done for us or just appeasing, like I mentioned before, and even dissociating. I was working so hard. But I had to heal some of this childhood trauma to then be able to see I can see how I would falter in these rooms because of who I am and what I grew up in. And I think that's important for me in my own bias, not to blame anyone. I mean, I'll get to that part, but but to recognise that. So when people say, are you coming back? I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure exactly where it will land. I'll tell you in six months. But I definitely believe that dismantling the power structures has become a big part of who I am for this next 10, 20, 30, 40. I want to see the next generation not have to go through what I had to go through. Mm. It's a lot there, isn't it? That's so much. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you know, coming out of the gate with a big mission. <laughs> well, you know what? I figured it out. I'm not on my own. You're so not on your own. I've got so many people that I'm learning from and, you know, they. I look at these women who are in these stru power structures really trying to dismantle them by having conversations and one of them writes to me, her name's Winifer, uh, and she writes, well, I look forward to mentoring you at some point because you are the future. And there was something in that. I was like, you're right. 
no wonder I need to take my time with this mm. because I need to learn how big these power structures are and where's this little little piece of the power structure I'm going to poke and really poke because of my lived experience. I think there's something really powerful in that, like, take your time, work out where your efforts are, are best focused as opposed to being like okay here's this massive like I've just got to do the whole thing like it's just like there is going to be a place where my power is going to have the most effect and I'm going to take my time and work out where that is and all the way through even what connects me to you to have this conversation I believe in the power of social connection when I was going through mental health depression anxiety burnout in that two years was I disconnecting from my community and how was that affecting my mental health? Or was it my mental health that disconnected me from the community that I needed to thrive? And there's not a lot of research around, well, there's starting to be, just how important community and connection is. Mm. And that's where I feel like I'm not actually doing it on my own. I'm part of what I call SOCO, like social connection is what makes me thrive. It's needed for my mental health. And there's already these amazing people doing this and dismantling sexism and racism and I just got to join their gangs rather than, hey, everyone, I'm going to lead us. Mm. You just get to be part of the movement. Yeah. And that's really powerful because we are stronger together. Totally. Because there's an arrogance and a naivety of being young and being a social change. An activist. Yeah. Yeah. There's been some really incredible projects that we delivered only comes from being naive and an activist mm. and can't believe they worked. <laughs> you know? So yeah. I don't really necessarily need to lead this point. I just would like to contribute and be a part of the collective who are dismantling these power structures. Which in itself is just like that's going to get you out of bed in the morning, right? It seems to be these days. Yeah. I'm interested. Yeah. Yeah. So how can people join this movement? Like if someone is listening to this right now and they're like, oh my God, this is what I needed to hear. How do I get involved? What's the best way for them to do that? I don't know their best way, but you're a coach and I would say keep defining what your values and beliefs are with someone like Emily Chadbourne. I did plug that. <laughs> Thank you. Because you do need to understand your own process of self-reflection before you go and think you're going to change the world. Mm. Too many people just jump and go, this is what I'm going to do, when really I think it is a process of self-reflection. So that's the first thing. Yeah, and do you think that's part of the strategy that's missing in these sort of massive corporations who are like, hey, you've all got bias, and then everyone's like, oh, yeah, look at my privilege, but there's no... There's no strategy, there's no formula for like, so how do we recognise our bias? What do we do when it's really uncomfortable? How do we hold the tension of that? And then how do we go and do better? Two things that have become very apparent from learning from these amazing speakers. But the one thing, two things that stand out for me is, let's say it's corporate that you're in or any kind of major organisation and everyone's trying to do these DE&I strategies and make sure that we're not hiring with a colour bias or that our leaders are doing X, Y and Z. There's a real responsibility and duty on the CEOs and leaders. That's still part of the problem because they're white mm. or not a female or LGBTIQ 
or disabled or, you know, the lists go on. That They're ticking boxes and everybody knows this and I think that's such a cool thing. I have no qualms about what we're trying to do as a society at the moment. But I heard this thing from Winitha and I loved it. She said, but don't forget you need personal agency that we must still empower everyone else that's inside these structures to say, I can change that. Now, personal agency inside an environment that tells you to be quiet because of your colour or because you can't speak up of being that you're gay, that you're a lesbian, that you're trans, like these oppressive forces in these organisations, will st- you won't even feel them. They're invisible. You just don't say anything. Yeah, no one's saying them overtly to you. No. No, but you know that there. It's very uncomfortable to bring that up in a workplace. But I believe now that all of the work that we do with people on their mindset, their values, their career dreams, their family dreams, their relationship dreams, this is a sense of personal agency that you're tapping into right now. You've got that in you to speak up or move forward. And that's where I think there is this wonderful duality again. Because most people who are scared of saying the wrong thing, to be wrong and be called a racist or a sexist or whatever exist there is there for you, excludes you. So see that duality again? So these people are like, I don't want to say something wrong. Actually, that's where personal agency comes in, to have these conversations. You're like, you're not going to be wrong. There's a woman that I follow who I have... The biggest girl crush on at the moment. Her name, her name is Africa Brooks. Cool. No, no, no. Bring it. See, so I mean, I'm not alone. There's, there's hundreds out there. They're doing it. And she is all about. We are not going to change this system unless we have the, like, again, it's the agency to be able to come to a space and get it wrong, like, especially as somebody of privilege. Like, and I I absolutely resonate with that. Like, I follow every single word that she says, so I resonate with it so much. The amount of times that you're like, I don't know how to speak up, or I'm scared to speak up, or I don't want to be a white saviour when I speak up. And so we've got to create a space where people can really fuck it up. Like, we are in such a time of change, and no change happens perfectly. Change always happens imperfectly and we're always calibrating and we're always readjusting and we're always trying this out and it's not quite the way that it should be so we're going to try this instead and I think that has to start on a personal level so that that can happen on a corporate level so that that can happen on a societal level and a humanity level right like we've got to give ourselves permission to be like oh this is so uncomfortable I'm going to say this have I got that right or still start off every workshop if I have them if I feel like doing them I'll say everyone say I'm allowed Oh, I love that. Say it. I'm allowed. I'm allowed. I'm allowed to feel whatever I feel. These are uncomfortable conversations and I've been ripped to shreds by elders, by community members in First Nations. It is uncomfortable. And one of the coolest things that these elders said to me, they're like, see, in your world, everyone's being passive-aggressive and not speaking up. But, you know, in our world, it's like we fight. We get it through. We get through and then it's okay on the other side. Now, I'm Polynesian. That's exactly how my family does it. And on the other side is empathy. And I think, yeah, you have to be able to say to yourself, I'm allowed here to feel it all and listen. Yeah. These leaders don't have time to say I'm allowed. They're trying not to be wrong. And my biggest thing now is be messy. Because you will learn. You will learn empathy in a way you've never known how. 
which is maybe a reflection of why the last two years I gave myself full permission so when I stand up in rooms again, it's messy in me. I am broken, I am bent here and there and there and but I accept all of that now. I have to. And maybe, maybe not I have to. I just understand the process of that acceptance leads to compassion. And the same thing happens in micro moments inside corporate startup. You know, that's my one of my maybe my biggest comeback areas is I want to know, are VCs, venture capitalists, racist? Mm. I want to know about closing the gap, this capital gap. And most VCs will say, oh, I am not, but I'm willing to ask you that so you can go through a process as a venture capitalist and go, you're right, I don't, these people of colour who I'm maybe going to invest in, maybe my bias isn't that I don't trust them or some have said to me, if you've got an accent, I won't fund you. I think there's it's this binary way of thinking, I think, that we have to get out of as well, isn't it? It's like we have, in our minds, we're like, well, racism is bad, right? Yeah. If you are racist, then you are a bad person. And I'm not a bad person, no. so I can't be racist. Yeah. Well, that's not the way that the world works because in between being overtly racist and not, there is a whole swath of grey. And it's about how comfortable can you get being uncomfortable in the grey bit where you're like, well, no, I, I think I'm a really good person. But actually, now I really think about it, when I hear some, someone with an accent, does my brain go less educated, bigger risk? And, th- and that might not be necessarily a conversation you have with yourself. It's not like you're like, oh, no, I'm not going to invest in that. Because actually, if that was a conversation in yourself, you'd be able to hear your own bullshit. So it's about creating space for us to be able to have those conversations with ourselves and be like, eek, just seen that hadn't realised that was there. Now I know that that is there. I can do something different. Awesome. I love that. There's so much power in that. Because it is an emotional agility that all of these corporations with the big power structures, that, that there's that they have to go through what you just spoke about to recognise it. I also think there's like a design fault. Most organisational leaders are operational leaders. They're not really designers. You know, like people who actually design like centered designers they're, they're management and leadership and economic kpis and yeah. spreadsheets and but there's a fault in the design of these power structures everyone says try to create one outside and bring it in versus trying to tra- change the system and i'm still trying to figure out well what does that mean there's a need to be more mentoring programs well tick i get invited to every woman of color event there is in melbourne still awesome thank you love it People pay me more because I'm a woman of colour. Let's be honest. Um, or they're starting to. And I, I feel a quota. So these sort of designs, people are trying to shift the design that no one can see. And, you know, universities, they're trying to, you know, go out to them and recruit or talent acquisition and really see a different nationality or just ticking the boxes. And I think that that's maybe something here that I'm getting more and more into. I don't have the answer yet, but there's a design flaw. Mm. And it's going to take co-designing with the user, not with the people who have the power to design it, which we hear all the time. You know, you've got all these managers and who aren't the user, who aren't the customer, yeah. who aren't the community, and they keep designing things that are not needed. Yeah. So that's my other area. Oh, well, that's when we see that reflected in politics, right? Oh. Like, that's, ha- that's what's going on. I don't know how anyone can do politicians. 
politics. I'm too angry. I get too frustrated. <laughs> I'm like, oh my. Oh, they, I've got too much history. They would just never let me. <laughs> they would poke around in my history and yeah, they yeah, would yeah. take me out. She is still a party girl. <laughs> that's mine, by the way. Yeah, but it, but that's true, it, isn't it? Like, how many of us felt completely unseen and completely unheard and completely misunderstood throughout the pandemic, but also just in general, the world at large? You know, there's no, rep- there's not enough representation. And I want people who maybe are doubting that they're good enough or they're not making their way into some career or place that they want to, to recognise that maybe your I'm not good enough is actually systemic. That maybe you didn't realise that because you didn't go to uni, you don't think that you're smart enough, which is such a crock Mm. because you've got the lived experience, you've got the operational experience or whatever it might be. And that maybe because you are a woman, you're not speaking up because that was never our place and I want people to maybe just for a moment slow down and think about how they can improve their beliefs and their processes and accepting the fear in them and but to also know that it's actually a huge invisible issue around you. Mm. That's constant as well and I think a lot of the time in personal development we talk a lot about childhood trauma or we talk about you know how we were conditioned in those sort of imprint years but the thing I say to my clients all the time is like Yes, and it is constantly being bombarded to us. So you have to kind of create a huge amount of discernment with what you consume. And of course, that's time consuming and it's energy. And we're not going to be able to do that all of the time because it's like a constant subliminal message coming through, you know, even in TV or media or social media, or sometimes even just conversations with friends. You know, it is, it's completely systemic. And so. What if it wasn't anything, like you say, what if it had nothing to do with your actual worth and everything to do with the shit society that we have managed to build? Why not have this conversation? Because we're not blaming anyone. We're not. It's almost like if you can recognise it, you can't deny it. Yeah. And that's power to me. Like, mm. I was X, Y and Z. Someone took my power away when I was younger. But I also have all these amazing people who gave me power, who sh- showed me that the kid from the hood who shouldn't be here, really, like she should not be here, they showed me what was capable even amongst the structure mm. that held me in that disempowered state. It's a big conversation, but it's also very, I don't know, it's all this data saying that 0.03% of women of colour got funded, it also validates that there's a solution that can be built. And like you as a coach, you're like, yeah, I probably should ask them about are they holding themselves back because they're a woman Mm. or that they're a woman of colour. You know, I I think that this is part of the conversation. Yeah, such an important conversation. Emily, I'm sorry, not Emily at all. You can do both. It's a Mally, yeah. Mally. Emily. Yeah. Emily. Emily. I'm going to wrap it up because we're at time. No, did I bore you? No. Oh, my God, no. I hung off your every single word. (laughs) We're going to have a sneaky conversation for the the behind-the-scenes community in just one second, but I just wanted to say a huge thank you. Really quickly before we go, who else should I have on this podcast? Who else's voice needs to be shared? I really believe in the work that Nicole Gibson is is doing Mm -hmm. and even we had a big conversation about you know, she's spending time a lot more time in tech, um, but even I had to educate her on her privilege the other day, and she was like, yes, finally, someone had it with me. It's awesome. 
And then I would even say uh, the woman I'm mentioning, Winitha, I've just discovered her lately and I think she's next level, like diversity, equity, inclusion consultant and really done the work, like it's Order of Australia medal, amazing PhD. And even Efran Kahali, who is all about dismantling anti-racism in this country. Amazing. There's Great. three people I admire. Great. Thank you so much. And we will link your socials in the show notes so people can go ahead and follow you. Thank you so much. Oh, you're smirking. What's the laugh for? Well, I'm still really not doing <laughs> a lot of socials. I, mean, I just put stories. You can follow her, but she's not going <laughs> to. Don't you worry. This is part of me com- in the comeback zone. I'm like, all right, I'll start posting again. Uh, I even laugh. I'm like, why do want people want to hear me rant? But I understand. It has. I have to be a voice for those who don't have one, and I'm very happy to keep doing that, um, but also keep learning. Like I think the whole way through meeting you and knowing what you stand for, you have a strength in you that is off the Richter charts that I can even see why community is so drawn to you. And, yeah, thank you for just wanting to sit down with me and talk about the betrayal, what it is to really be a social entrepreneur. It's hard. And I do hope that people who are out there, it's like, why not stop? Mm. Because, you know, from that mess comes a really, really great message. And I think people need to know that it's it's good to do that sometimes. Absolutely. You're an absolute legend. Powerhouse of all women. Thank you so much for your time. Bonza. Emily Paulo, what a woman. I cannot tell you how delightful it was to spend an hour in her energy and her company. She's so gracious and kind and inclusive and just, oh, what a woman. We need more people in the world like Imeli. And if you want to hear more from Imeli, then jump on in behind the scenes because she graced me with an extra 10, 15 minutes of her time. We talked about her biggest business failures, some of the challenges that she feels like she has had to overcome. And yeah, this extra little episode, oh, if you've loved this main episode, the little extra behind the scenes, mwah, chef's kisses. Also, I am allowed. Powerful stuff. Thank you, Imeli. Thank you.